Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staver. Who gets to control whether Ohio cities can ban certain kinds of firearms? The state? The city? What about bans on plastic bags? The sale of flavored tobacco? Recreational marijuana? Fracking? The use of renewable energies like wind or solar? It all comes down to an amendment passed by voters in 1912. The Home Rule Amendment gave cities the power of self-government. But how far that power extends is a hotly debated issue, and it's one we're going to tackle today. Joining us now to explain what Home Rule is and how it's evolved over time is Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau Chief, Karen Kassler. Welcome hey. back to All Sides. Hey, great to be here, Anna. Thanks. So, way back in 1912... Ohio voters decided that cities should have the power to police themselves, govern themselves, operate their own utilities. And it seems like we've been fighting about it ever since. (laughs) I think that's true. And it's come before the Ohio Supreme Court several times. And the rulings, I guess, have been inconsistent, you might say, because sometimes the court has fallen on the side of municipalities and the laws that they have passed. And sometimes the court has fallen on the state and the laws they have passed. And and you just mentioned a couple of examples. I mean, guns, fracking, traffic cameras, uh, city residency for jobs, required residency, construction projects, uh, plastic bags, minimum wage. I mean, the list goes on and on. (laughs) Yeah, it's because the amendment um, basically says all powers of local self-government so long as they don't conflict with the state. And I guess that's just vague enough that they go case by case. So like, for example, they decided if local municipalities want to set up a process for recalling elected officials, that is an allowable form of home rule. But they can't monkey with the laws for collective bargaining. And there was even a fight over whether cities could opt out of fluoridating their water. Yeah, and that helped develop what's been called the Canton test, is the three-pronged test to see if the law violates the home rule provision or not. Uh, the ordinance uh, is an ex- exercise of police power rather than local self-government. The state statute is a general law. And the municipal ordinance is in conflict with the state law. All three of those must be satisfied for the state law to supersede the local law. That's called the Canton test again. and it's Because Canton didn't want to fluoridate. Yes. And so the, the, the question is then whether laws do violate this provision or not. I mean, but but again, you, you can look at different, depending on the arguments that are made, we've seen arguments go either way, and it, it's almost impossible to predict what the Ohio Supreme Court's going to do in certain cases because we've had very different rules when it comes to home rule. Yeah, I want to talk about a couple that have been in the headlines lately. So the state right now is actually suing the city of Athens to stop its ban on single-use plastic bags, like the ones you get at like Kroger when you check out. Their ban on plastic bags took effect this month, but Ohio lawmakers tucked something into the budget in 2021, which was a ban on plastic bag bans. Yeah, the whole thing started even before the pandemic, where the idea was let's ban plastic bags. Then the pandemic hit and people wanted to... I think it was Bexley that wanted to. Yeah, and and individuals, though, and stores wanted to be allowed, uh, wanted to get rid of the double-use, multi-use bags, do single-use bags, single-use containers for food, that kind of thing, during the pandemic. There was a law that was passed in 2020 that banned fees 
for plastic bag bans. Then that was later added to the state budget, and it permanently suspended all plastic ban fees passed by communities. Now, stores can still do what they want. Stores are allowed to ban plastic bags. You see Giant Eagle, you have to bring in your own bags. Uh, or you can use their bags for Because it's a, a private fee. business choice. Exactly. But communities can no longer ban plastic bags as a whole. And I mean, th- the idea of this came around nationally. You've got big cities like Boston and Chicago, L.A., New York City. Portland. Who have they've all made the choice to ban plastic bags. So that's why a lot of communities wanted to get on board that. But the state law says, no, you can't, as a community, ban plastic bags and charge a fee if people use them. And so we'll see. Um, The case is working its way through the courts. Um, Another one working its way through the courts deals with gun control. So here in Columbus, uh, they passed some city ordinances requiring gun owners to lock up their firearms. That's like a safe storage law. They also uh, banned magazines that hold 30 or more rounds. So they they didn't like outlaw certain kinds of weapons, but they they made some like moves that they consider gun safety measures. And the state was like, super can't do that. And now we're in a big lawsuit. Yeah, we are living under a state legislature that has been expanding gun rights for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so at least. But the the state has a preemption law that basically says that communities can't pass gun laws that conflict with state law. And that's been decided by the Ohio Supreme Court. It was upheld in 2010 in a case out of Cleveland. And then in 2018, Cleveland tried again, and an appeals court ruled, sided with the state, the Supreme Court decided not to take that up. So the preemption law still stays, but now we've got uh, the city of Columbus and other cities that are also now looking at this and saying, we want to pass certain ordinances that we feel will help maintain safety in our cities. And the state law is that... This is not a general state law, though, going back to that Canton test. This is like a you-cannot-do-this law. Yes, and and that's I think it's going to be interesting to watch this case because it does potentially set a stage for if it is upheld, then what can cities do? Are there rules that cities can pass that kind of skirt what the state has been saying in terms of expanding gun rights to multiple places? I mean, you've got gun laws now that say that uh, you can carry guns into bars and daycares and, and all that stuff. Yeah, it'll be really interesting, particularly when it comes to like safe safe storage, because that's not a restriction on having a gun. It's not a restriction on the kinds of ammunition, on the kinds of firearms you can own. It's about how you store it in your home. I don't I don't I'm not going to predict what the Supreme Court will do with that one. Well, if you go back to 1859, there was a concealed carry ban in Ohio and a guy sued saying, hey, this is my home. I want to have a gun in my home. And then the state Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that, that it is in the interest of the state to not have you do that. So that goes way back before the Civil War. And now we're in a totally different space here. I, I think a lot of the arguments here have been that you don't want a patchwork of laws around the state so that if you are driving around the state and you have a gun in your car, you go to It's illegal municip- in one city, but not in another. Right. And so that's been part of the argument here. But then, of course cities have said we under home rule should have the right to pass legislation that we think will protect our citizens and we'll see how that goes uh city attorneys that klein has actually appealed it straight to the supreme court so we might get a decision on that sooner rather than later i hope so I, it would be very interesting to read that <laughs> uh we also have rules about minimum wage so in 2016 cleveland tried to raise their minimum wage to 15 dollars per hour Uh, But before Cleveland residents could vote, the Ohio legislature passed another bill prohibiting municipalities from setting their own minimum wages. It's now in our state constitution, which is like a whole other thing. 
Uh, but they kind of said, no, cities can't go above the state. Right. And they wanted to pass a minimum wage law that would be $12 by 2018 and $15 by 2021. I think right now the Ohio minimum wage is 11 something. Yeah. yeah. So this was definitely a, a big leap. And city leaders opposed that because this was a private group that wanted to do this, saying that would make Cleveland's minimum wage so much larger I than think other at the cities. Time the minimum wage in Ohio was still around like seven or eight bucks. It was eight dollars so, and ten an hour, as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah, so going from eight to fifteen—that's a big jump. And city leaders said that would make Cleveland less competitive to bring in business, and so they tried to stop this legislation from going through. Uh, voters then in Cleveland, or this group in Cleveland, it was called Raise Up Cleveland, went to the city charter, found a provision that basically forced it to go to the ballot. But like you said, before it could go to the ballot and voters could decide, the legislature stepped in and said, no, 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 we can't do that. You can't do that. We're going to keep that away from the power of voters to decide. And then the state of Ohio amended the Constitution, not to get too into the weeds, <laughs> and put minimum wage increases there. We actually may be voting on minimum wage again in November. That's we may true. actually get to a statewide 15, but I don't know if that's going to happen. But Yeah, that one has come before the Attorney General a couple of times, I think, and, and has not yet been certified. Uh, we're still waiting for this year. This year could be a very big year when it comes to the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. Then we have flavored tobacco and recreational marijuana. And this is an interesting push-pull. So uh, state lawmakers are in another legal fight, actually, with Columbus over the sale of flavored tobacco products. Columbus has banned them, so you can't buy any flavored tobacco in the city right now. Uh, but the state has been trying to pass laws um, that would uh, basically ban a ban again. <laughs> yeah, and that actually is going to come up for a vote in the Senate today. The House has already overridden Governor Mike DeWine's veto. DeWine vetoed this idea twice now because he wants cities to be able to ban the sale of flavored tobacco, flavored vapes, all of this stuff, saying that they are specifically marketed or available to kids and that that's putting kids' lives at risk and their health at risk. And so the House has already overridden that. The Senate is likely to do that today. And so that would make laws like Columbus's ban no good anymore. Yeah, but back in the summer when they were negotiating out the budget, it looked for a hot second like they had a deal because they were willing to ban all flavors except for menthol statewide. Doesn't look like he's going to get that compromise now. No, and and it's interesting because DeWine has called for a statewide ban for a very long time on this. And uh, House Speaker Jason Stevens referenced after the House overrode the veto that, hey, maybe we should look at this at a statewide level. Well, DeWine has said you should, and, and you haven't done that. So I, Yeah, I don't... the real argument seems to be over menthol. Yeah, and, and I know retailers have said that these are items that they have a customer base for. So, yeah. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, though, what's really interesting is Ohio legalized recreational marijuana in November. And then Republican Gary Click very quickly introduced a bill that would let local governments vote to outlaw it. So sort of the opposite of tobacco. <laughs> yeah, you can't we... ban tobacco, but you can sure ban marijuana. And that's kind of a little bit of the history of, of home rule and, and the legislature and that relationship with uh, communities is that sometimes communities should get the opportunity. Sometimes they shouldn't. And and this is an example of that. But, I mean, uh, obviously, Gary Click and most Republicans, if not all, uh, except for maybe J.B. Callender, were uh, opposed to the legalization of marijuana in Issue 2 in November. And the legislature still has not done anything to move forward any laws on the sale of legal recreational marijuana. Right now, as as Governor DeWine points out, it's it's legal to 
to smoke own it, it and, and smoke it, but it's not legal to buy it anywhere. And he's been pushing the legislature to pass the Senate's version of that, which would allow for marijuana to be sold in dispensaries. But yeah, the question then becomes, do communities want that to happen? There's a lot of communities that already have dispensaries. So, I mean, I think some of that argument may already be over. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And then there's another big divide over fracking, which is like oil and gas exploration and renewable energy. So um, one area where Republicans seem very into home rule is when it comes to things like wind and solar farms. So they want communities. Communities now can vote on these proposals to build and essentially veto them out of their area. Um, But you can't ban fracking. Well, and I think this reflects where the legislature is on those two issues. I mean, you will recall that House Bill 6, while the nuclear power plant subsidies were repealed in that, there's still that part of House Bill 6 that basically bans requirements for renewable energy resources that uh, utilities must take a certain amount of their energy from renewable sources. So that's kind of where the legislature has been on the idea that they are required in some way. But then fracking, of course, the legislature has broadened that, allowed for fracking. um, Really, we've got the, the potential of fracking on state lands and in state parks now. Yeah. And then we're going to this feels like a like very we're like popping very quickly from topic to topic (laughs) here. But I'm trying to get through all the different ones and all the different ways like home rule touches our lives. Um, Red light cameras. Traffic cameras is the big one. I think that is one of the most interesting ones because it's not a party line issue. You've got Democrats and Republicans on both sides of this one. And every every two years, we see a whole new set of potential traffic camera legislation. The latest traffic camera ruling from the Ohio Supreme Court was in May of 22, and it unanimously upheld as constitutional a state law from 2019 that says the state can deduct funding from cities that use traffic cameras. Cities have to report how much money they get from traffic cameras, and the state can then deduct that funding <laughs> from their annual outlet. I so, remember this. It's like, I won't name names, but there's like a certain lawmaker who got a red light camera ticket and has been on a rampage ever since. I believe you're referring to Representative Tom Patton, maybe? I'm not sure. <laughs> but Tom Patton uh, and, and uh, Representative Bill Seitz is the other one who's been really big on this. But uh, I just spoke to Representative Patton, and, and he's ready to do some more red light camera and traffic camera legislation. He says that right now one of the biggest concerns is that a lot of outside companies, companies outside Ohio, even outside the U.S., are operating these camera programs, and that's a that's a worry for him. Yeah, and finally, there's also the regulation of Airbnbs and short-term rentals. Uh, there's a law floating around in the state house right now that would restrict cities. So essentially, like cities can't ban short-term rentals. So you look in other states. I think New Orleans, in particular, has been considering a full-out ban on short-term rentals because they wonder have such a why. <laughs> I mean, when yeah. you look at, uh, you know, Mardi Gras, <laughs> that kind of thing. But uh, I, that will be another one that will be really interesting to follow because certainly communities want to have the ability to ban short-term rentals that they think might be problematic for some particular reason, you know, during certain times of the year or whatever. And, whether and it's they can also, or not. it gets to like housing affordability. Mm-hmm. So I used to live out in Colorado and you look at places like Aspen and Telluride and all of those like big ski destinations, like... The people who live there can't afford to live there because so many of those homes are now short-term rentals. 
Yeah, and, and I think with the idea of promoting tourism as a big thing in Ohio, I mean, just yesterday there was a proposal to eliminate the state income tax and the rest of the commercial activity tax. Oh, we're going to be talking about that next week. Yes, for the 10% of businesses that are still paying it. And one of the things that has been talked about is, well, maybe Ohio has a lot of tourism and could really promote tourism. So, yeah, that might be something uh, that's part of that. Oh, that was a whirlwind. <laughs> and that was Karen Kassler, chief of the Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau. Thank you so much. It's great to be here and talk about this stuff. I love yeah. it. We're going to take a break. And if you have to go too, you can catch the rest of our conversation anytime you'd like by searching for All Sides on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back in a moment on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking about home rule this hour. That ongoing, sometimes contentious, debate between state lawmakers and cities over who gets to write the rules for things like the storage of firearms, the sale of flavored tobacco, and the minimum wage. One group, the Buckeye Institute, has waded into this debate suing cities when they think they've gone too far. Joining me now to talk about this push and pull is Greg Lawson, a research fellow at the Buckeye Institute. Welcome to All Sides. Great to be on. Thank you very much. So before we get into specific stances that Buckeye has taken on these different aspects of home rule, I want to ask you some more general, possibly some more wonky questions about that 1912 amendment. (laughs) Um, So it allows municipalities to create laws and take action for which the Ohio Revised Code does not specifically give authority. That seems to be interpreted very case by case. It is. And I think that you were talking a little bit about there's a sort of a, a, a several pronged approach that the state Supreme Court is now using to kind of figure it out. But it's actually a little bit complicated. And occasionally this can be perceived as being a bit in the eye of the beholders. And so when I think the legislature acts uh, to do things, they have to be very mindful about what they're doing when they're engaging in anything that might be perceived as trepsing upon the territory of the home rule of municipalities. Obviously, municipalities are very jealous of their prerogatives. Uh, they feel very strongly about that. That's some, so strongly that we obviously put that into the Constitution at one point in our state's history. Uh, so whenever you're looking to do this, the legislature needs to be extremely careful and mindful of what the precedent is relative to what the uh, test is for figuring it out. Because if you're not careful, as you well know, uh, you can ambiguity is the invitation to litigation. <laughs> and that definitely seems to be the case. Um, one, what the policy wonk in mind in me finds particularly fascinating is that it gets so granular in some of these cases. So when it comes to criminal codes, for example, local governments can increase the penalties a little bit, like moving something from a second degree misdemeanor to a first, but they can't make a misdemeanor a felony and they can't lower a penalty below state law. So it's like they get this little narrow bit of wiggle room in criminal code. 
No, that's right. It's it's very kind of specific. And I think the the general concept there is is that yes, that's a kind of a police power essentially that the local community has, which was one of the key pieces of what home rule allows municipalities to do. Uh, But if you're thinking about changing something from a misdemeanor and jumping it to a felony, that usually entails some pretty significant uh, increases. You're talking about the differences between usually some degree of fines and and a specific scope of fines versus potential amount of time that you have relative to incarceration, which is obviously a much bigger issue when you think about how that uh, deals with the freedom of individuals and things like that, which is why I think that it flips back into the concept of why the state at that point wants to be engaged in this and make those sorts of broad-based decisions, because it's not just at that point about uh, dealing with that very specific, uh, potentially kind of highly localized sort of situation. So uh, it is, but again, you know, you could envision as time goes on, and what happens with courts and precedents and things like that is things get built up and become uh, uh, sort of the way things are. But was it inevitable that it had to be that way? And I think that's an open question. I think probably not. That is sort of how different courts over different times have interpreted things. And then does that work over time and what is necessary in order to be able to overturn that precedent? And that usually requires something pretty significant in order for a subsequent court to want to go ahead and do that. So I want to talk about uh, gun control. So Buckeye actually sued last year on behalf of a couple of Columbus gun owners regarding safe storage requirements, um, in, uh, caps on the amount of ammunition that you can have. So uh, why did you guys decide to get involved in this case? Well, I think this is also a key piece. Cities, and frankly, the state itself, doesn't have the right to be able to impinge upon constitutional rights. Federal that, constitutional that is, rights. And that's a very big thing. Well, and, and the state constitution yeah. as well. And and so I think that's a very important piece here. Uh, so and, and also, by the way, the state in, in this case, as I think Karen had mentioned previously, uh, has, has done a lot uh, in terms of trying to address some of the practical issues. And, and, and clearly the issue of if you're traveling from one jurisdiction to another and you have this patchwork of different codes, you could be completely fine, completely within uh, the legal uh, situation within one community, and then you cross a municipal jurisdiction. And sometimes, as you well know, you can cross into a township that's unincorporated and then back into the initial municipality just by going straight across the street because of how we have these crazy ways that uh, different kinds of uh, lines are. Particularly in Franklin County. You oh, absolutely. You have townships that are completely surrounded by uh, a city, right, That are and non-contiguous pieces of townships and things like that. So it's very confusing. So when we say it's a cr- patchwork, People might say, well, it's really not that big a deal, but actually it is because very few people would know necessarily when they're doing it. So that's a big issue. So when you have this kind of a decision made by uh, the city of Columbus or any city for that matter, uh, that would impose an undue burden in terms of the exercising of an individual's constitutional right. Uh, And it also violated the fact that the state had already made this clear through preemption laws that had already been litigated. There's been a number of other cases well before this one uh, that has indicated essentially what we think is the same basic argument. So, uh, we thought this was a, a mistake. We thought this was violating uh, individuals' constitutional rights, and we got involved from that standpoint. But you guys aren't aren't always on the side of the state when it comes to the issue of home rule. Actually, in 2017, you wrote a piece arguing in favor of local control for prevailing wages. Now, 
That's not the minimum wage. So very quickly, can you explain what a prevailing wage is? Yeah, prevailing wage is basically a situation where there's a public construction project where public tax dollars are being used to build something for a local government body. In Ohio, we have a prevailing wage law, which sets essentially a floor for what has to be paid to contractors and subcontractors on that project. And that prevailing wage can be fairly high. It's And it's based upon basically, it's kind of a complicated situation, but it is based upon what union contracts are in different parts and by different regions of the state. And it's essentially set by the state of Ohio Department of Commerce. There's a division that deals with that. Uh, In this case, what that does a lot of times is it makes public construction projects extraordinarily expensive. And for some communities that have more limited, particularly small rural communities, that have very limited tax resources and are stretched, if they want to build a new police station or a new fire station or something like that, uh, it's hard for them to do that. They're not like Columbus or Cincinnati or Cleveland. And so when you have these high costs, it makes it very difficult for them to be able to do it. So you might end up with a situation where you have antiquated buildings decades beyond their usefulness, and frankly, you just don't have the ability, or they have to go and ask for significantly higher taxes from local residents. And that's obviously a big challenge. Or go beg for the capital budget. Being, well, or go, well, yeah, which is something we're going to be seeing a little bit of in the next <laughs> few uh, months here in Ohio. Uh, but no, and so we thought that this is a situation where the localities could uh, have some flexibility to be able to make decisions on their own. Um, we, we fully acknowledge that a lot of places would not uh, choose to do it. Right. But for those that wanted to, we thought that was an important thing, and we thought that that was important for those individual communities, those individual taxpayers. And it doesn't necessarily have a negative impact. If other cities around them have a higher prevailing wage and have voluntarily chosen not to do it, this wouldn't undermine the entire concept of prevailing wage writ large, like a statewide uh, ban or something like that on prevailing wage would, uh, which is a whole separate question. Um, so we thought that was not in some way violating a general a, a general law for the entire state because you're not setting an entire statewide sort of uh, rate for uh, employment or rate for construction or something like that. And another place where the Buckeye Institute has gotten really involved is actually municipal income taxes. So this is really interesting. So municipal income taxes are essentially like I live in Delaware. I work in Columbus. Therefore, I pay taxes to Columbus because I drive on their roads. If I get into an accident downtown, like it's Columbus police and fire coming to get me. And that's the idea. But during the pandemic, uh, you know, I worked at home a lot. I didn't come down to the city of Columbus, but I was still paying Columbus city taxes because my office existed, uh, my empty office existed downtown. And y'all got pretty involved in this aspect. Well, and and let's be clear here. uh, The state can't tell cities they can't do something with taxation to raise local revenue, but it does have the ability to sort of regulate the nature of how taxes operate. And so that is a key piece. In fact, the state had acted during the COVID pandemic initially, and it kind of gets complicated, but essentially they said, because it happened so fast and it was very difficult for big employers to keep track of where everybody was because they were having to stay home under the order, uh, they essentially said, well, you can withhold uh, to the city where the main point of the main office is or the main location like you have historically done, even though people are working from home. It was a withholding provision and there were some questions about was it a withholding provision or was it actually a tax liability provision. But at the end of the day, we thought that what was happening was cities were actually making it a liability provision, which means it's not just a withholding and you can get those taxes back because you don't actually owe it there because you didn't actually work there. Uh, You should be able to get those taxes back uh, because you didn't actually do the very things you were talking about. The whole idea, of course, of the municipal income tax is that you're using the resources of the city while you're there working. There are some questions that we have that are even more broad about the municipal income tax and how it 
operates and the complexity of it. And it's what also that a does. patchwork of laws that oh, change terrible. from place to place. And, and there's been efforts uh, to, to try to simplify it, to try to standardize it. Uh, there was some significant legislation over a decade ago that tried to uh, make it more uniform across different jurisdictions. I mean, we at one point in time, we had different definitions of what income was by different jurisdictions. And you have issues of if you live in one jurisdiction, you may get a full credit for what you paid uh, where you work versus where you live. And I get a partial credit. Well, you know, and it's I, all I, different. Yeah, I get a full credit where I live. I live in Westerville. I work in Columbus, so I pay Columbus first, but I don't have to pay Westerville. I get like fifty percent off, I think, in Delaware ish. But you still have to pay fifty percent of your of where you are residence plus the two and a half percent that you pay in Columbus. So it's a I very, do. it's a very which, and if you factor in other kinds of taxes we have at the local level, you can really start to see this layering effect to where, in a certain sense, you can pay. It is, it is not uncommon now for an Ohioan to pay more in local taxes on, the, on their income than they now pay at the state level on the state income tax. Uh, and then knowing where it all is is very confusing. And if you're a contractor and you work in many different jurisdictions, you have to file, by the way, in all those different jurisdictions. Yeah, if you're like a plumber yep. or do home construction. It gets very confusing. And, and you'll, you'll hear some horror stories over the years of how uh, – you didn't work in a jurisdiction for a year, but you get like uh, a tax document from the city that you worked in last year, and then you have to go and prove and get an affidavit and say, no, I didn't actually come into the city this year. Yes, I did two years ago, but not this year. And if you don't do it, they they try to come after you for tax liability and penalties on top of the liability. So it's a real mess. Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of issues with local, how structure of local government works in Ohio. This is one of them. And I will say, I think Ohio and most national groups that look at taxes would probably agree we have the most complicated local income tax system in the entire country. Few states even have uh, city-based income taxes. And of those that do, it's usually regard bigger cities like a New York City, for example, or something like that in New York and not every city. And the only other jurist state that has more that do this is Pennsylvania. And they have a more standardized process uh, by which people can make sure that they take care of whatever they owe. And so it's easier uh, from a logistical uh, standpoint. As I'm sure our listeners can tell, Greg has big feelings on municipal income taxes. Actually, we've been talking about municipal income taxes probably for four years. It's a it's it's a pet it's a, it's a pet issue of, of mine. I've, I've watched it. Uh, at one point, I was actually a litigant in one of the cases. Oh, we yeah, actually I sued on that. this particular uh, case. We actually uh, because there were some issues coming out of the pandemic about whether it was a liability question. We actually have a case uh, before the state supreme court. We've already argued it. The decision has not come down yet, uh, but we argued it last year. Uh, so, so we're waiting to see. We are waiting to see uh, about uh, what happens to 2020. This is actually about uh, goes back to 2020 now. Uh, but and it could mean, depending on like if you're somebody like me, it could mean a couple hundred bucks might be coming back yeah, to you if you, they rule in favor of Buckeye. That's right. And we think it's important that we set a standard on how cities can 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 do this because there was some confusion, I think. Uh, again, a about, lot of confusion during the pandemic, just generally. Oh, it was terrible. And, and, and I could see why some cities could have some confusion about this. Uh, but there's a difference between withholding money for the ease of administration, which is really what was intended, versus the city gets to hold on to that money irrespective of whether you actually set foot in the city uh, during that time period. So I want to get your take on a couple of local control disputes that seem really at opposition with each other. So, for example, the state is moving perhaps even today, to ban bans on flavored tobacco. So, like, communities shouldn't be able to regulate the sale of flavored tobacco. But there is a proposal in the House to let communities ban this marijuana. What's the difference? 
Well, uh, I, and I would anticipate... Other than the political orientation of the people making the law. And I suspect there'll be litigation no matter what happens on this particular point. Uh, and I think, and, and I do think that we have to be very, very careful about what we're doing and that we're not picking and choosing. One of the, and, and when you think about what a general law is and a general uh, safety standards and various things like that that the state does, uh, that, that, that's when you're thinking about a general law. It has to apply equally across the board to all individuals. And that's one of the key parts of that test that, that people look at if it's litigated and that the Supreme Court is established. And if you're looking at this where you're picking and, win, uh, picking and choosing a winner and a loser in different things, that is a telltale sign that you might not do so well if there is litigation. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't predict with absolute certainty how any of these type of cases will absolutely go. And of course, there's different makes up of the court over different times. But they, they do tend to not like to like to just throw out the baby with the bathwater. When you've got precedent established, there usually has to be a pretty good reason. So I, I would urge legislators to be very careful uh, in what they do here. I think there are some cases where, like with fracking and various things like that, you have a statewide issue where you have a safety regulate. There's safety issues that are associated with the process of how you do it. There's uh, Obviously, there's a statewide tax that's on, uh, on the product, and there's also a statewide economic interest relative to what does that do for the overall economy. There's an argument there. Is that same argument apply in this particular case? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think it's going to be a little bit in the eye of the beholder, and I almost guarantee that it will, in fact, produce litigation. <laughs> Actually, speaking of fracking, it's interesting that there are restrictions, so you can't vote to not allow fracking in your community, but you can vote not to allow wind and solar. Well, and, and I think this is getting to the point where we'd like to see, you're right, it's a, and it's, it's, you had a lot of people who were very upset about that, and there's a lot of questions about that, but this isn't really the underlying policy of whether you should have it or not. It's about what should locals do or not do. And I, we, we have some concerns about how uh, the process of green energy and how good that is in the state of Ohio versus other states that have more access and ease of things like that, uh, but we stayed out of that particular fight, and, and frankly, we didn't testify or get involved in that because I'm not 100% sure where that where that will go as time goes on. I think locals, local residents, obviously, this gets into property rights and gets into some of the questions about a lot of people are very upset about it because you might say that um, one farmer might want to put a wind farm or a windmill there, and it boosts there because they get money in terms of royalties. The neighbors say this declines my uh, value and it hurts my value. And it actually is, a, it, first of all, it impacts my quality of life, but it also means if I sell my uh, farm or, or something in the future, I may be able to get less. And people out of say it. the same thing about fracking, right? They're yeah. concerned about well fel- failure and like. You Does know. it link into their situation and what happens underneath? So these are all very, you know, they are very difficult kind of questions. And, uh, you know, I don't think, and I could be wrong on this, I'm not sure that this is, law has been on the books relative to the sort of the windmills and the solar uh, to know whether there's been litigation yet, because I don't think this has gone to the Supreme Court, any particular case yet. I don't think so. I do know there's a couple of communities north of us that have voted to ban, say, like wind farms in yeah. their areas. So I know there's been some cases. I don't know if the people that wanted the wind farms have sued as of yet. I don't think it's been, I don't think we've gone all the way through the entire system uh, yet no. to, to do that. I think it's still pretty early. And so, you know, I'm not sure where that one is going to reside uh, and where that will go if in fact, and again, you know, who knows? Don't can't make the assumption, but it wouldn't be surprising if this eventually ends up in court uh, depending on the outcome here. But this is why home rule is such an interesting uh, thorny issue, because you get to a situation where you have politics can play a role, uh, personalities can play a role in this. 
what are the standards that are there, and it's very murky. I mean, even when you have this test, it seems on one hand to be somewhat straightforward on the face of it. Well, maybe it's not, because you can make some broad-based arguments, like the plastic bag ban. Well, at a certain point, that has an impact on a lot of different... If you Now, if you're just one store, maybe that doesn't have an impact, but if you are a, a chain and you have centralized distribution and you have things that are already established and one community bans but another one doesn't ban it, are you going to have to come up with an entirely different way of distributing, you know, uh, reusable, I don't know, cloth bags or paper not bags. doing that or paper bags or whatever the situation is, but yet you don't have the pre-established relationship with your suppliers to do that. Are you literally going to send a different truck out instead of being able to do one run with everything? How do you do that? I mean, they're just that seems kind of petty on one hand, but on the other hand, that's real business sort of issues, and it does raise complications. Is that of statewide concern? Those are the kind of things that that different people will have different opinions on, and it is why this issue tends to a lot of times get into court. And I think what you're seeing right now with the legislature and and local governments is um, local governments, a lot of them, uh, are doing things that they haven't historically done. I think there's a perception that some of these local governments are doing it maybe for their own partisan reasons, and that's not a good enough reason from the perspective of some legislators to go and do things that have these sort of reverberation effects. And so that's why you see the legislature probably taking a little bit more action now uh, than, you know, you've seen in the past. Because it is a hotter topic probably in the last three or four or at least five years than I remember 10 years ago, for example. That was Greg Lawson, a research fellow with the Buckeye Institute. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're talking with the mayor of Dublin about how local control impacts her day to day. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Steber. Home rule the right of Ohio cities to decide how to govern and police their residents has been around for more than 100 years. And so has the debate on how far that authority goes. Do cities have the right to penalize people for things the state does not, like locking up their guns or banning the sale of certain products like tobacco or marijuana? Joining me now is Carrie McCarthy, Executive Director of the Ohio Mayors Alliance. Welcome to All Sides. Thanks. Thanks on this beautiful morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Dublin Mayor Chris Ambrose Grooms. Welcome to All Sides. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to tell our story. So, uh, Mayor, I'd like to start with you. And just how does home rule impact what you do and don't do in Dublin? Right. So, you know, I think government that gets closest to the people is always going to be the most directed by the people that it represents. And so in Dublin, we try to make our decisions that benefit the people that call Dublin home and the businesses that call uh, Dublin home and the folks that that visit there as well. So home rule directly affects us by making sure that we can have the access to decisions that are 
important to the important to the residents. So, Carrie, the Ohio Mayor's Alliance has pushed back on several state proposals dealing with home rule, like the banning of flavored tobacco sales, um, saying local knows best. Can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, the Mayor's Alliance is a bipartisan organization. We represent the mayors in the 30 largest cities across Ohio. So we have a diverse array of communities within our coalition. We have large suburban communities. We have large cities. We have sort of older industrial-based county seats. We have just a very good eclectic mix of city types. But all the mayors may deal with different issues, but all of them understand the value and importance of protecting uh, their home rule rights. Uh, Local self-governance, as Mayor Amaros Groom said, is, is very important because our mayors, our city council members, are elected by the residents that they serve. Uh, when their residents have concerns or issues, uh, they bring them to their duly elected leaders. Their duly elected leaders respond to those issues. The challenge is, is that in response to those issues, uh, the state legislature, sometimes the heavy hand of the state legislature, will come in and say, you can't do this or you should do that. And that's not the way our system of government was set up. The framers of our Constitution amended, as you uh, uh, indicated earlier, uh, the constitutional right to home rule. Uh, That is a very important provision of our Constitution, and we're going to defend the right for local elected leaders to be responsive to their residents on a host of issues. You know, the Alliance has even recommended a state commission, right, to preserve local control and talk about collaboration. What what is... What are you hoping to get out of that? Yeah, well, I I mean, as you talked about earlier in the show, um, there is some uh, complexity uh, understanding where home rule stops and an overriding state interest begins. Uh, The way we've seen this play out over the last several decades, frankly, is uh, there's a difference of opinion on what that line looks like. Uh, The legislature passes a law. Cities sue. It ends up in court. No one wins. Taxpayers have to foot the bill. It's just not the right way to conduct uh, business. And what we think this uh, state and municipal government commission can do is formalize a process to help educate local leaders, state legislators uh, on how to find that balance. One perfect example of how locals and the state have come together has been on the deployment of uh, 5G technology for Mm. the next generation of Internet The city of Dublin played an important leading role in helping to find that balance. Uh, Cities opposed the way the state tried to do it initially, which was pretty heavy handed. But thanks to, you know, the leadership in Dublin, uh, municipal governments all came together and found that common ground to work together. That's what the Home Rule Commission is. And avoided a lawsuit. And avoided a lawsuit. We all came together, supported it. Uh, The technology was deployed in our cities, just as our cities and residents wanted. Um, And so there is a path forward, but it's just going to take a little bit more of a thoughtful approach. And Mayor, I want to ask you a question that is about uh, how local governments can tax, because this touches on Home Rule too. So the state has a bunch of rules for how municipalities can and can't tax its residents, but there is new legislation to change how renewal levies work. Do you see this as a local control issue? For renewal levies specifically, um, that would apply more to fire, EMS, schools, Mm. uh, those entities more than it would to municipalities. So in the city of Dublin, we have a 2% income tax. And as was already outlined before, you pay first where you work and then you pay where you live. Um, So in the city of Dublin, we've worked really hard to keep our income tax at 2%. Most municipalities of our size around the region are 2.5%. 
um, so that we would collect 2%, leaving one half percent to be collected in the home district of the employee. So I, I don't know that renewal levies are as important to local municipalities as they are to the other entities that are funded through taxes. Maybe that's a better question for you, Carrie. Do you see that as sort of being maybe under the umbrella of local control? Well, I I think it's important to think about it in the broader context of what's happened over the last decade, really, maybe 15 years. You know, the local government fund, which was the biggest revenue sharing stream between the state and local governments, has been cut in half. Pretty dramatic cut. Uh, The state used to dole out about $800 million a year. It now doles out about $400 million a year. And that's not just the cities. That's the counties and townships and every other local political subdivision around the state. So the reduction of the local government fund, a number of other tax policy changes that had pretty significant fiscal impacts on cities have left cities trying to figure out how to manage their budgets. And keep in mind that police and fire is predominantly our city's largest single budgetary expense. So anything that that makes it harder for cities to have the revenue they need to protect the fiscal health of their community, to pay for police and fire, uh, to do all those things is going to be um, a sore spot, (laughs) something that we as an advocacy organization are going to engage around. Um, But, you know, if people care about public safety, uh, we have to have the revenue to pay our police and fire to do the very difficult work that they do and keep our community safe. So, you know, whether it's this provision or, or anything else, um, you know, we have to have uh, sound, stable, uh, fiscally strong cities in order to have, you know, a prosperous state. Mayor, have you been watching the flavored tobacco fight that's going on right now? Sure. So um, that's really important to us as a community. In the city of Dublin, in order to purchase tobacco of any sort, flavored, uh, smoking, um, smokeless tobacco, you have to be 21 years of age. And what this legislation would do to re- would remove all of that to be 18 years of age um, for any kind of tobacco. We don't necessarily see the differences in the tobacco. We are really about protecting our young people and about being sensitive to those that um, might fall prey to some of the marketing schemes that the tobacco industry likes to target. So, uh, Carrie, what do you make of so Republican John Cross? He is a state representative. He's been pretty hard in the fight to ban flavored tobacco bans. Some of this, like, is the wordplay in some of these is a little <laughs> right. tricky. But he says it doesn't infringe on home rule because it involves the private sector and commerce, which impact the whole state. Well, you know, I disagree. Uh, you know, when the state increased the age from eighteen to twenty-one to sell tobacco for retailers, they uh, explicitly deferred the the and the enforcement of that to local governments. Uh, so this was a several years ago. Local governments around the state have had the option to pass a tobacco retail license. That license process sets forth for the retailers in their communities how local uh, uh, cities and health departments are going to penalize retailers that sell to minors. Um, so that is in existence now. Uh, and what the legislature is uh, a- about to undo with this veto override doesn't just include the city of Columbus's attempt to keep uh, uh, addictive tobacco products out of the hands of teens, uh, but it also does away with this entire enforcement mechanism that we have had in place for at least five years. Um, and there will be really no enforcement mechanism for retailers as a result of this to keep these tobacco products out of the hands of, of people that shouldn't have them, young, young people that become addicted. And so, 
you know, I, I disagree with the sense that this isn't something that, that, that locals could be doing. When the state just a few years ago said exactly this is what locals can and should do to enforce this mechanism. Keep in mind, unlike liquor, there is no state liquor control agency. Uh, there is a st uh, state liquor control agency, but there's not the equivalent with tobacco. Uh, there are no state liquor agents uh, that are going to go out and, and enforce uh, the, the selling of tobacco to minors. The state, again, deferred this enforcement to locals, and now they're going to undo all that because they don't like the fact that Toledo or, excuse me, Columbus is trying to ban the sale of flavored tobaccos. I, ju I just think that, that that is the wrong way to do business. I think locals, as we've demonstrated in the past, can come together and work out where that line is, as we talked about earlier. Uh, but when it's just sort of the heavy hand with sort of this sweeping legislation without a lot of dialogue, understanding what the implications are, that's just not good for either the cities or the state as a whole. I didn't realize that the ending this ban on tobacco bans would wind back some of that 21 to purchase. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the enforcement mechanism, uh, again, cities have to pass uh, a TRL, a tobacco retail license. I think some 30 cities across the state, Republican and Democrat, big cities, small cities, all have some degree of that. Um, and, and this will wipe, wipe that away, that enforcement process that is explicitly set forth through the ordinancing uh, in our local communities. And, and that's really sort of the complexity that exists in some of these things that, that don't always get um, you know, fair airing uh, in the legislative process. So, Mayor, that means that you guys won't have the authority to go check stores that sell tobacco to make sure they're on the up and up? Or what well, does we, that change yeah. if this override happens today? Well, we won't have the funding to do so. So as Carrie mentions, the TRL that we issue in the city of Dublin, um, those come with fees associated with it. So um, in order to try to um, make sure that we are spending the money on the enforcement pieces oh, properly, yeah, gotcha. that is the money that we use to enforce um, the code that we have in the city of Dublin. So with the removal of this, that TRL will go away, and so will the funds associated with it to do tobacco enforcement. So the enforcement would fall back upon the state to um, monitor all of the retail entities that are located in these local municipalities that are part of a community. Then the state will have to try to figure out a way to come and enforce to make sure that they're selling to the proper people group that they're uh, permitted to do so. And it sounds like you're concerned that might mean a lot less enforcement checks. I suspect so. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've heard, you know, we've been dealing with this now for a few years. I mean, this was in the budget. Uh, the governor thankfully vetoed it. And now we're on the precipice of a veto override. You know, but we heard, again, with Republican and Democratic mayors alike, the number of schools that are having an epidemic of, uh, you know, confiscating vape products. This, the spike in, in teen tobacco use uh, is coming from all sectors. So it's not just a big city issue. This affects communities of all stripes. I, we're almost to the end of the hour, but I did want to touch on Airbnbs because there is le, uh, a bill in the legislature that would really restrict how cities regulate these short-term rentals. I think that's a twofold issue. One is the Airbnbs certainly contribute to the housing shortage um, because you are using, you're taking homes off the market that will only be used so many nights per year rather than a home that can be used every night of the year. The second is the expectation of the people that live in proximity to these hotels. They essentially ask, uh, act as though they're in a commercial district, but they're in a private residential. This is the perfect issue to be left for local control because you have a different expectation of privacy depending on where you live. 
if you're in a very urban area, you might not expect to know who's walking on the street in front of your house. And the suburban might be different. And a rural in, in a third way would be entirely different as well. Yeah, I think the mayor said it right. I mean, it's just another example of why one size fits all doesn't doesn't always work. And we need that local flexibility. Our cities are unique. They have unique value. And we need to be uh, you know, I think we need to be sensitive to that as we think about how to, you know, approach, um, you know, issues of home rule and, and overriding state laws. That was Carrie McCarthy, executive director of the Ohio Mayor's Alliance. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. And thanks to Dublin Mayor Chris Ambrose Grooms. Thank you. Appreciate the time. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.